This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth. If you're a guest, we, we are four weeks into a five-week series in the book of Ruth, and we have been having just an amazing time, at least I have, uh, in Ruth. I hope you have as well. And uh, Ruth chapter 4, if you're using one of the Bibles that are in the chairs, under the blue chairs, in the green chairs, and I would encourage you to do that if you didn't bring a Bible, So, because we're going to read a lot of Scripture today. And uh, follow along with us, and, um, and that's on page 238. So you can find it there, and I hope you take some notes. The theme of chapter 4, the story has been building, and I'm not going to take time because there's got a lot, a lot to cover today. I'm not going to take time to review, but uh, how many of you have been reading through the book of Ruth? Some of you have told me, I've been reading through it, great. And, uh, and that really helps because you're reading through it, and I know you've got questions, and I'm going to try to answer some questions today, but the theme of today Chapter 4 is redemption. We're going to be talking about what that means and, and how that happened in this story and see how the picture of the kinsman redeemer is a picture of the redemption uh, that you and I, those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ's sacrificial death, we just sang about this baby who was born to be a sacrifice. You and I who have trusted in his sacrificial death on the cross as payment for our sin to free us from its guilt, to give us an an eternal inheritance in God's family. We're going to see how that all relates this morning. We're going to look at the law and how the law could not accomplish that. Uh, We're going to see a lot of symbolism today in chapter 4, so I hope you're ready for that. Uh, There are a lot of cultural nuances, by the way, uh, in this chapter. You know, last week there was plenty as well. We were there in the threshing room floor, and, and and Ruth came in, and you remember she uncovered his feet, and he woke up and found this woman laying at his feet and his feet were cold and and she was told by Naomi what to do and Ruth says Ruth is thinking I don't get this at all and that's okay you don't have to get it just do it and uh, so she you know the, covering the feet and covering her and and the six measures of of the grain and all that there's a lot of symbolism in this story and chapter 4 there's even more and chapter 4 if you thought chapter 3 was bizarre on the threshing room floor wait till chapter 4 wait till today because really gets into a culture that we, we really know nothing about, but I'm going to try my best to help us understand, because to understand the, the story of Ruth and to grasp its, its really profound truths uh, requires us to understand these cultural things about them. Now, what are these cultural nuances that we need to understand? Let me give three this morning. Number one is you have to understand when looking at the nation of Israel, the value of the land to an Israelite family. The value of the land. When they left Egypt, they were in slavery in Egypt, and they ventured, they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years, and they finally came to the land that God had promised them, promised to Abraham, uh, their forefather. They finally got to the land. God said, remove, chase out, get rid of all the the occupants that aren't my people, and, and this is your land, and these are the borders that I've given you. Now stay here in this land and possess this land. It's yours. I gave it to you. And they were to always possess the land. God said this, this promise in Joshua chapter one, I think it's verse three. Every place that the sole of your feet treads upon is your land. Now remember that. That's going to come in the factor here later in the story. I may not tell you how, but you'll figure it out. Every place that you step 
With the sole of your feet, that is your land. And so they were given this land by God. It was God's gift to them forever. And we know their history. They, they were run out of there nearly 2,000 years ago, the Romans and all the persecution there. And they just came back into the land as their possession uh, just in, in 1948. So it hasn't been all that long that they've been back to the land. But it is their land. And to lose the land to an Israelite family, to lose the land that they were given when they came into the land and each family was parceled out their land. To lose that land was the greatest tragedy they could suffer. The greatest tragedy. To lose that land. So the value of the land, you need to understand that. Then you need to understand the value of a son to inherit the land. Every Jewish mother wanted to have a son and, and, and that was so important. Why? Did they like boys better than girls? No. But there was a reason, and the reason was this. It was that the sons carried on the family name. And through the sons, the land stayed in the possession of the family to whom it was given by God back when they possessed the land under, in Joshua's time. Losing their sons then, as, as Naomi has done, you know, Naomi has lost both of her sons. They died and they had no children. Losing their sons, first losing her husband and then losing her sons and having no heir to carry on her husband's family name back in chapter one was what caused Naomi such great bitterness in her life. Because in her mind, it's all gone. Nothing that belonged to my husband's family remains. It will be taken away and his name will be erased from the book of deeds in the land and remembered no more. And that was a horrible, horrible thing. So they valued the land. They valued having a son. But there's also this. When Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and you go back to chapter one and read about him, In the beginning of the story, there was a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is their hometown. They left Bethlehem. Their reasoning was because there was a famine. We can't live here. We can't stay here. Let's go somewhere where they have food and where we can can survive. And so they abandoned their property in God's promised land that God had given to him. He said, you possess this land. You don't ever give this land up. They did. And he led his family out of Bethlehem across the Jordan River on the other side of the Dead Sea to Moab. And there they stayed for 10 years. That for Elimelech, please hear me, that for Elimelech was an act, a direct act of disobedience to God's will and God's law. Because God said, possess the land, don't give it up, it's always yours. You say, well, but they, were, they, they faced starvation. Well, so did everybody else in the land, but they didn't leave that we know of. But how would they make it without, without being able to grow a crop? Because there was a famine. They would have to trust God, wouldn't they? And that was why God said, don't leave, I will take care of you. They left. And consequently, sometime after leaving, her husband Elimelech died, leaving Naomi in a most, the, the worst place a woman could be in her life was to be a widow. And she became a widow, and she saw his death as God's punishment on them for his disobedience. Well, it could well be that she did not want to leave her home in Bethlehem. Naomi may have said, Elimelech, no, let's stay. Naomi could have been the one, as oftentimes is in a family, the woman, the wife, is the more spiritual of the two. Um, At least that's the way it has been in Christianity. But but it could be in those days, Naomi could have said, no, 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 Elimelech, let's stay, let's trust God. And and Elimelech, he's a very pragmatic, practical person, and he probably said, no, we got to go. And maybe over her objections, they went, we don't know that, but that could have been, and maybe that's the reason for her 
one reason for her bitterness. But the second reason is she's got these two sons, Malan and Kilian. They grow up there in Moab. They probably come in in their early teens. They grow up and become young men. They are attracted to the young women in Moab, as young men are wont to do. And, and they find these two young women and marry them, again, violating the law and the will and the practice of God's people. They weren't to marry outside of their own. But they did. And then Naomi watches as her two sons died. Now is she not only a widow, but her two daughters-in-law are widows as well. So great reason there for bitterness. Sons meant everything. And through a son, the land was passed and kept in the family name. And every Israeli woman, by the way, here's a secondary reason why sons were so valued. Because every, every Israeli woman, when she found out she was expecting this thought came into her mind. I wonder if my son will be the promised one. I wonder if my son might be the Messiah. Every woman thought that about her sons when she was expecting. And, and here, Naomi, both of her sons are dead. Not only will the land not be transferred to, to the next generation, but there's no Messiah coming through her as well. The value of the land, value of the sons. A third reason is a provision for the family redeemer. And that meant that was a legal thing. <clears throat> that was for the closest male relative then to, if there was no husband, there was no son, there was no heir, for the closest family relative, male relative, to purchase the land, to redeem it. When the word redeem means to, to buy it back. To purchase it back and bring it back into the family. And then when he redeemed that land and brought it back into the family, the deed was still in the original owner's name. It wasn't in the name of the redeemer, of the one who purchased it. It was in the original owner's name. And in the year of Jubilee, the ownership would pass from the redeemer to the heir of the original owner. Now, you may say, what is the year of Jubilee? What are you talking about? The year of Jubilee was every 50 years. They would have this one year, and it lasted a year, and it was a big celebration. It was a celebration of freedom. It came after seven cycles of seven years, because every seventh year in Israel was a Sabbath year. And on that year, every seventh year, debts were forgiven, the fields were not planted. They, they were allowed to just be fallow for a year to replenish and so forth. A lot of things happened every seven years. Well, after seven of those seven years, they had the 50th year, which they called Jubilee. It was a year of freedom. It was a time, number one, time of rest for the soil as well as the people because they could not grow, they could not plant, they didn't work in the fields and in the farm. So they had a year off. That sounds good, doesn't it? But think about this. I thought about this this morning as I'm teaching this. This hadn't entered my mind. Well, they've just finished a Sabbath year, year number 49, which is a year when they don't plant. And now they're going right into another year, year 50, when they don't plant. What in the world do we eat? You better store up a whole lot in year 48 because you've got two years coming without planning. But it was a year when the, the soil was, was, uh, was let, allowed to rest, and, and whatever grew in the field, maybe some remnant seed, some crops, some, some of the seed from last year's harvest that didn't get picked up, and it grew, and it, the field then became the place where the poor would go and glean, and it was a place for the live, livestock to graze as well. So there's rest. Then number two, all the land was re to revert back to the original owner. This is in Leviticus chapter 25 and chapter 27. The original distribution of the land from back in Joshua's time to whatever families it was given to, it was to revert back to that family because sometimes people would sell their land, right? 
Sometimes they would sell it they're, they're, for whatever. They lost their job. Been on somebody, the, the man of the house has been injured and can't work anymore, and they're in, they're in dire straits. This would, they would sell their land. But here's how, how it worked in God's system, God's economy. On the 50th year, if, if you bought that land, you would have that land until the year of Jubilee, and then it would revert back to the original owner. So they never lost it legally. It was always there. But they couldn't gain from whatever you grew on it, whatever you harvested, and so forth. It became yours for that period of time. So it reverted back to the original or lawful owners or his heirs. And there are a couple of exceptions to that, and they're found in Leviticus 20, 25, and 27. Number three, every Israelite... who had, because of economic reasons, again, every Israelite who had sold himself into slavery, either to his fellow countrymen or to a foreigner settled in the land, sold himself because of poverty and remained unredeemed, was to be freed along with his children. So if that was to happen and there was no, I have no choice, I've got to, and I can't survive, I can't live because of economy and so forth, and, uh, and they, they would sometimes sell themselves into slavery. As free people, they would become somebody else's slave. And, but when it got to the year of Jubilee, all the slaves were set free. And they went back and they were, they were taken care of then. So it was all a temporary thing. Now, in this story, I've told you up to this point that different characters in the story symbolize different spiritual truths. For example, Ruth. Ruth represents the one who is outside the family of God. She was a Moabite. She's outside of the family of God, but Ruth, outside the family of God, comes to a point of conversion in her life when she, she becomes a believer. It's there in chapter one when she has that, that great little poetic statement of Ruth to Naomi when she says, I will go with you and I will follow you wherever you go and I will live with you and I will die where you die and your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. There was a transformation in Ruth. So Ruth goes from becoming a non-believer outside the family of God, she becomes a new convert. And in this story, she represents all of us who are Christians as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and directs us and and guides us and and redeems us. And we're going to see all of that really vividly in this story uh, today. Naomi represents the Holy Spirit starting in chapter two. She guides Ruth and, and gives her instructions. You're going to the field and here's what you do. And you stay here and you stay there and you listen to them and you stay in that field. And then in chapter three last week, and you go to the threshing floor and here's what you do. You go in at night when nobody sees you and you lay down and you uncover his feet and you lay at his feet and then, then when he wakes up you, know, you, uh, you, you say to him, you're the kinsman redeemer and you need to redeem me and he's going to cover you with his cloak and, and Ruth is going, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And all of us who are Christians at some point in our lives, especially as new Christians we hear things maybe in church or maybe in a Bible study, we read things in the word of God and we just go, God, I don't get it. That was Ruth. But that's why God's given us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is giving us direction, and he's giving us God's plan and God's will. And when we say to him, I don't understand the Holy Spirit and the God's word is saying, that's okay. You don't have to understand it right now. Just obey. And we used to sing that song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be what? Happy in Jesus. But the, and so we learn how to trust and obey even if we don't understand. Naomi represents the Spirit of God. The barley field and the workers in the field where Naomi was, was gleaning in chapter 2 represent the church, the body of Christ. And the people that are there to serve us and, and, and work with us and, and, and take care of us, that represents the body of Christ. Boaz in this story represents who, church? 
Christ. He represents the Lord Jesus, the Redeemer. And we're going to see that really come out in this story today. Now, the theological term for this kind of symbolism. Some of you think, is that really, is that accurate in the Bible to have that kind of symbolism? Sure it is. And everybody that's been to seminary, where's, where's Larry Zernick? He's, he's going to school right now, taking a lot of Bible classes and Ramona's as well, and, and, and online and so forth. What, you're gonna, you guys, if you haven't learned already, there's a theological term for this symbolism, and it's called typology. And it's saying, you know, in the Old Testament, God would use people in the Old Testament to teach us New Testament truth, to teach us what would come. For example, our kids today are upstairs learning about Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, who was sold to the slaves and taken to Egypt and and grew up to become the second in command in Egypt. He is a type in that story of Christ because he becomes, for the remnant of his family that's still in Israel, he becomes their savior, doesn't he? Because he's the one that's provided the food so that they might not starve to death. So there's, he is a type of Christ. David is a type in many of the stories of Christ. So we have all these people in the Old Testament who are types of different things and people in the New Testament. So we have that here in this story in a very heavy way. Now in chapter 4, where we are today, we're going to meet the next character in the story, the nearer redeemer, the one with the first right to redeem the land. We heard about him last Sunday. He symbolizes in this story the law, the Old Testament law. In fact, the elders are going to represent also in the story the Old Testament law. And the law was summarized, and if we can take all the law of Judaism, all those laws in Leviticus and and Deuteronomy, and we just compacted them together and said, can we summarize them? And the answer is yes. They're summarized in 10 laws that we know as the 10 commandments. That summarizes the entire law. We're going to see that in this story uh, in a very vivid way. Now, let's, um, let's read verses 1 and 2 real quickly. Boaz went to the gate of the town. The towns are surrounded by walls, okay? And that helps us understand the gate. This would be the, the city limits, but there's a gate. He went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer, the fellow that Boaz told Ruth about the night before, said, he's got more right to you than I do. The family redeemer that Boaz had spoken about came by, and Boaz called him by name and said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Wonder what's up with Boaz. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders. Again, there's the symbolism there. The 10 elders represent the 10 commandments of the law, and I'll explain that to you, I hope, in just a bit. 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here, and they sat down. The gate was just outside. It was there in the city wall. It was the main entrance into the town where during the day a crowd would gather and the elders would gather there. And this was the place. This was kind of like their town hall. This is where they had their town council meetings. This is where they had court and the elders would be the judges. And so there was a lot of activity every day, business being transacted and so forth, where the elders were involved. Well, Boaz knew this other fellow, this kinsman redeemer, This other relative, he's going to have to come into town today, so I'm going to wait for him there. And Boaz had a plan. He had a strategy to get all this taken care of for Ruth so that Ruth could become his wife. And so he's planned all this out, and he was there early. He knew this fellow would be coming. He knew he'd have to go through the gate. Now, remember that the night before he told Ruth, I'm going to take care of all this in the daytime, today, later. And he kept his promise. 
At the gate, the elders again gathered for all their business in court. And so it's a very public place. So what's about to happen here wasn't done in secret. It wasn't a shady deal or anything. It's done publicly publicly in front of everybody. Now, this kinsman redeemer, this near relative, Boaz had to have known his name. Why is that? Because they're kin. They could have been brothers. Maybe they're cousins, and this other man is, is an older cousin or uh, the son of an older brother of Elimelech. The rabbi said that Boaz was Elimelech's nephew. But they know each other. They're cousins or brothers, family members. They've grown up in the same town, and just like you know your cousins if you grew up around them. So he knows this man's name, and, uh, and, but the author of the book doesn't tell us his name. Isn't that interesting? In fact, maybe in your translation it says, and he called him and said, hey, so-and-so, you know? He called him, he didn't, it said, you know, he didn't, the, the author doesn't want to give us his name, even though we know Boaz knew his name. Why? Well, several possible reasons. One reason is, it doesn't really matter what his name was. You know, he really doesn't play heavily into the story. Um, secondly, what, what he's about to do is considered a shameful thing in the nation of Israel. And so perhaps the author, by not giving his name, is, is, is showing him contempt for not fulfilling his responsibility according to the law. I'm not going to put your name in there. Number three, maybe um, because this man would not preserve his, his relative's Elimelech's name, he forfeits his own name in the story because m- maybe his name's going to be erased. Uh, in the book of deeds. So there's, there's several possible reasons why his name's not included, but it's not there. So we don't need to try to figure out who was this guy. Just, he was a close relative. Number three, verse three. He said to the redeemer, Boaz said to this man, he sat down there in the presence of the elders. And he says, now, Naomi, who's been now in, in town for how long? Anybody remember how long has she been in Bethlehem? Six weeks. All right, six weeks. Naomi, so it's given time for everybody to get to know her. Naomi's been there for all the harvest and for the threshing and so forth. He said, Naomi's selling, or Naomi has been gone. Naomi is the mother. They've been back for six weeks. Who has returned from the land of Moab is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother, meaning our our relative, our kinsman, Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, just in case you didn't know, um, about that. Because... You can buy it back in the presence of those seated here. This is where that kind of real, real estate property deals were done. You can buy it back in the presence of those seated here in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, it's kind of like now's your chance. If you want to redeem it, do so. If you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it. And I'm next after you. So if you don't, if you forfeit the opportunity to buy this land, you tell me because I would like to buy it. And the man said, he thought about it for a second, I guess. And he said, yeah, I'll buy it. I could always use some more land, graze my cattle or raise my crops. Sure, I'll buy it. It'll become mine because I know that Ruth, that, excuse me, that Naomi has no heir. There's no son to inherit this land. At the year of Jubilee, there's no one for it to go back to because they're gone, they're dead, and it will be mine forever. Sure, I'll, okay, good deal for me. I'll redeem the land. But there's a legal technicality with this property, and that comes in the next verse. Look at me at verse five. 
And then Boaz said, and, and on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also requ- acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name, Ruth's man, husband's name, Malan, who's dead, to perpetuate his name on his property. Okay, here's the legal technicality. You can redeem it, but when you buy the property, you also get a wife. Whoa, 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 wait a second. You know, that... <laughs> Somebody's listening. Um, you, you get the property and it becomes yours, but you get a wife as well. And the Redeemer, verse 6, replied, replied then, he changes his mind. He says, oh, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. You, Boaz, take my right of, re- of redemption because I can't redeem it. Now, apparently at the death of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, the property then passed on to her son, Malan. And that meant Malan's widow, who is Ruth, was included in the redemption responsibility. She goes with the land. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a package deal. And hearing that news, the near kinsman changed his mind and gave up his right to redeem the property. He knew that Boaz was next in line. So he said, here, you take my right of redemption. Now, I, I read that, and what his excuse was, I'll ruin my own inheritance. That was his reason. I, and I'm trying to think, okay, what does that mean? What's the possibility? What does he say in there? Well, there's several possible answers for that. One is he would have to devote time and energy now to looking after not only the property, planting or grazing the cattle or whatever went along with that property. Not only now has he got to invest extra time and energy and finances in that, but he's also got to take care of a wife. Maybe he can't do that. He's too poor to sustain the land and a wife and family. Maybe he, um, he thinks if I take this land and ha- take proper care of it, I've got to neglect my own inheritance, my own land, and I'm not willing to do that. It's more than I can handle. Some have suggested, and I think this may be something that, that works real well in here, is that he knew the story of Naomi and Elimelech going to Moab. Moab. Elimelech dying, Malan the son marrying a Moabite woman and then he dies and he thinks if I marry this Moabite woman, God's going to do the same thing to me. No thanks. I don't want that to happen to me as well. If he currently, this man had no children and we don't know, but if he had no children and he and Ruth then being married had a son, that son from his marriage with Ruth is legally far as the law is concerned, is legally the son of Ruth's deceased husband because what was Malan's, her husband, now passes to the son. The son becomes, takes on whatever his, his mother's first husband owns. So legally he becomes Malan's son. And, and the guy's thinking ahead and he said, he might also claim my inheritance as well and pass it on in Malan's name instead of my name. And that erases my name from the book of deeds as though I had never lived. No, I don't want to go there. And even if he he and Ruth had other children, we don't know that they did, but there was a blessing that they would. You'll see that. But even if they had other children, then when the year of Jubilee came along, and we don't know if that's next year or five years from now or 30 years from now, we don't know when it is. But when the year of Jubilee comes along, 
the property that he has redeemed that belonged to Ruth's husband and Elimelech will go back to its original owner's family, meaning that son who is legally Malan's son, and not to his other children that he may have with Ruth after this, this firstborn son. So he might lose, you see, he might lose his inheritance. So in reality, this purchase of the land, whether it's him or Boaz, this purchase of the land, in reality, the best way for us to understand it in our cultural understanding is this is a lease until the year of Jubilee. And when the year of Jubilee comes along, it reverts back to Malan's descendant. Right? So he's thinking all these things through and he decides, you know what, um, I don't think I want to go there. It's about the law. And there is a law in the Old Testament. We're going to go there in just a few moments in, in Deuteronomy. It's called the Leveret Law. But it's about, and this is all in their legal system, that how this works. And they lived by the law, supposedly. This was how the law was how the Israeli people believed they would please God. And they did all the sacrifices and obeyed all the laws, although they didn't obey any, any of them perfectly. I remember as a boy asking my mom, who was, who was very religious, I asked my mom, if, how, mom, how do I go to heaven? And my mom's religion that she was involved in taught her that heaven was for people who are good. And her literal answer, I remember this to, to this day, she said, it's like God's got a scale. And on one side of the scale, he puts all the good things you've done in life. And the other side of the scale, he puts all the bad things you've done in life. And whichever is heavier, if the good things are heavier than the bad things, you go to heaven. If the bad things are heavier than the good things, not so much. So that was, that was her understanding of how to get to heaven and how she explained it to me as a boy. Another way to say what she said was very simply this. Rick, you got to keep the Ten Commandments. Rick, you got to do good. Problem is, the Bible says there's none that does good. There's no one righteous, no, not one. If you obey the Ten Commandments... That thought is that you go to heaven. And that's, frankly, that's what most Christian denominations teach and believe. And that's what we mean by thinking that the law can save you. They were all caught up in the law, but the Bible tells us that the law cannot redeem us. The law has no power to erase our past. The law has no power to clean up and forgive. All the law does, the Old Testament law does, is it serves to point out what is sin in our lives. If you look with me at this verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul sums it up and he says what the law could not do. And he's just told him why the law is powerless to save us. Can't save us. Nobody's going to be in heaven because they were good. No one's going to be in heaven because they really, really tried hard to obey God's commandments. No one is going to be there because of that. Because he said what the law, what the law could not do, why? Since it was limited. That wasn't its purpose anyway. It was limited by what? By the flesh. What does that mean? There's nobody in this world who's ever kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. None. None of us. Limited by the flesh, what the law couldn't do, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours, and he lived a perfect life, the only one who ever did. God lived this life in the flesh, in flesh like ours, and he lived it under sin's domain. He lived in this world and as a sin offering. The law could not do it, but God sent his son. Jesus was put on earth by God to do here what we could not do. What's that? Obey the law. 
keep the law. He couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. He, he did. And he lived the perfect life, even though he became human just like us. Verse 7. At an earlier period, and here's a little un, kind of background explanation for what's about to happen. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transition in Israel. Now, remember, we, I told you about Joshua 1, I think it's verse 3 a few moments ago, that wherever the sole of your foot shall tread, that will be your property. Whenever they gave up that property to symbolize that, what did they do? They took off their shoe and said, and to say, where my foot has been treading all these years, where my family has been walking all these years, I'm now giving that over to you. This was the way they, if you will, signed and notarized a contract exchanging property, exchanging real estate. So we're given that. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, Buy back the property yourself. And Boaz said to the elders, how many elders were there at church? Ten. Ten. He said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today. Now you're witnesses of a couple things. Number one, you're a witness of the fact that this man cannot redeem the property. But you're also a witness that I can, that I can and I will and I am. Look what he says. You're witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name, Malon's name on his property. Not on my property, on his property. So that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his home. You are witnesses today. And the elders and all the people who were at the gate said, yep, we are. We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, who were they? They were the mothers of the 10 sons of Israel. 12 kids. May you guys be like them and have 12 sons. And Ruth probably said, well, I didn't know I was getting into that. What are you talking about? May you be powerful in Ephrathah. That's the old name for Bethlehem. And famous in Bethlehem, may your house be like the house of Perez, the son of son Tamar, born of Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And I need to rush through this. I'm not going to have time to read all this to you. I don't think. Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is the leveret marriage. Let me just, I'm just going to summarize it for you. If a brother gets married to a woman, a man gets married to a woman and he dies without leaving an heir, without leaving a son. The wife is not free to go out and marry whoever she wants to. She, by the law, is required to marry his next brother in line, her brother-in-law. And the brother-in-law is required by law to marry his wife, his brother's widow, and to produce a child, an heir, to his brother's property, his brother's inheritance. That was a law in Israel. By the way, this law is still in practice in Israel today. And what happens, but here's the deal. The brother-in-law, you know, his brother dies, and now here's this woman, and law says, you got to marry her. Maybe he doesn't like her so much. Maybe he's watched her for a while, and he said, no, no way, not her. 
and he refuses. He says, I'm not going to do it. It's a shameful thing for him to do that. But if he does that, here's what happens. In the presence of the elders at the gate of the city, he will, he will sit down and the, the woman that he has scorned, the widow of his, of his brother, will come to him. She will remove the sandal from his foot and she will spit in his face. And she will say, this is what happens to a man who does this to his brother's wife, refused to marry her. And you women, you women are going, you go girl. And she, she would do that. And, and that was... That was the public legal way they handled this. Well, this kinsman redeemer, we go back to Ruth chapter four, he knows the law, he knows what's about to happen. And, he, and, you know, and Naomi doesn't have time yet because Ruth doesn't understand this, this isn't her culture. And before Naomi has the chance to say, now go and take off his shoe and spit in his face. Before she gets a chance to do that, the guy takes his shoe off and gives it to Boaz and says, here, it's yours. He's thinking fast, isn't he? Wow. Done before the 10 witnesses. The 10 witnesses who represent the 10 commandments who say he is unable to purchase the land himself. He can't redeem it. But there is a redeemer because Boaz accepts it and he says in front of all the witnesses, I will purchase the land from Naomi. I will pay the price and I will marry Ruth. And we will have a child and we will have a son and that son will carry on Malan's name. In the same way, church, you and I have a kinsman redeemer. We have a kinsman redeemer. The story, the story is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus who became the kinsman redeemer for mankind. And our sin, which we are all guilty of, made us without hope as Naomi and Ruth, these widows had been in Moab. But God is at work in the story. God is providentially pulling all this together and, and, and he's given Israel his law before he sent Christ and the law is, had first rights on us but the law could not save us. The law could not redeem us. And so we needed a savior. So God sent the redeemer. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay a ransom for our souls. And his grace even extends to those of us not born into the nation of Israel. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when he heard the news that Mary was carrying God's child, said in Luke 1, 68, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Paul writes about now apart from the law. The law couldn't do it. God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Peter said, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty life inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. The old hymn said, I will sing of my Redeemer 
and his wondrous love to me on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Listen to this next verse. I will tell the wondrous story. How my, listen, think about Naomi and Ruth. How my lost estate to save. How my lost, my redeemer would save my lost estate. How my lost estate to save in his boundless love and mercy. He the ransom freely gave. Sing, O sing of my redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. Let me ask you a question while we bow our heads and close our eyes. Have you a redeemer? Has Jesus Christ become your redeemer because, as Paul said, by faith, through God's grace, not by the works of the law, you've put your faith totally, completely in him. You've been redeemed. Has that happened in your life? We're about to enter the Christmas season. That's why Jesus came, to be your redeemer. If today you would like him to be, the Bible says, simply by faith, simply by faith, believe in him, that he is the Savior who came and died for you, to forgive you of your sins, to pay your debt, to set you free. If I can help you with that, I'll be up here after the gathering and be glad to talk with you through that. Father, Take your word now, help us to grasp it. And Lord, be blessed by the redemption that we have in Christ. In your name we pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world. 